Ezra 5 is on page 392, if you want to follow along in the Blue Pew Bible. But we're going to jump right in this morning, and I'm going to start by putting a picture on the screen of a building that's down near the Meadowlands, about a 20-minute drive from here. My guess if you've been in this area for a while, you will recognize it. That is the, a little bit of an aerial view, maybe you saw from an overhead ramp. And then there's a second picture that you probably even more common as you're driving on the Turnpike or Route 3 down near the Meadowlands. And for those of you who are fortunate enough to be unaware of what this building is, it, w- it was what was formerly and not so affectionately known as the Xanadu Building. This building began construction in 2004, and if you remember, it kind of was the proverbial talk of the town. Uh, The plan was going to be that down near the Meadowlands, where all the sports arenas are and the racetrack, that it was going to be this massive indoor mall. It was going to also contain an amusement park. It had shopping, it had restaurants, but its feature talking point was that ramp you might have noticed in the first picture. It was going to be an indoor ski slope. I don't ski. I have never skied. I never planned to ski in my lifetime, but I was pumped up about this. And it did not stop me from talking to everybody about it's going to have an indoor ski slope. Well, they broke ground again in 2004. They got to basically that point in those pictures in the span of a couple years, and then the work stopped. The company behind it went bankrupt. And in my seven minutes of research this past week, I found that it was taken over by an investment firm, um, and construction restarted, but then stalled again because the financer of that construction was this little company called Lehman Brothers. Lehman Brothers went under in the recession, and from there, it was just a series of ownership changes, financing issues, legal challenges that continued and stopped the work on this building year after year after year. And the majority of us at the time, even now, uh, knew nothing about the ins and outs of all those delays and the reasons for it. We just knew that every time we drove on the turnpike, we saw this unfinished building invading our view. And when it started with all the colors and all the shapes, it was like, how cool is this? This modern building with all these modern aspects of it, it's going to be amazing. But then at some point in that delay, everything flipped and we all just began to resent it. Like, that is the ugliest building I have ever seen in my life. Who chose those colors? Who thought that was a good idea? What's even Xanadu? It starts with an X. I don't even understand what that means. Awful taste. And and then about 15 years after construction started, I, I stopped kind of keeping track, but it had, from what I read, a modified opening in late 2019. Enjoyed a few months until a global pandemic hit. And I don't know where things even stand with that building or who owns it or what's in there. I'm still kind of jaded, I have realized, and, uh, and against it. But this building project, it went from being an object of pride to, over time, a symbol of disappointment, maybe even shame. It's a building project where the work stopped. We are walking through this book of Ezra in the Old Testament, 
which feels more like a jog than a walk at times, going a chapter a week, and today it might feel like a sprint, because we're going to cover two chapters this morning, five and six. If you have not been with us the last few weeks, a kind of 30,000-foot view of this book is a story that is unfolding before our eyes of a sovereign God restoring hope in his people. Sovereign God, restoring hope in his people who have been in captivity, and they're now beginning to return from exile back to their homeland. And in the book of Ezra, up to this point, the story has revolved around a building project. The returned exiles were rebuilding the temple that was destroyed and ransacked a couple generations earlier when they were driven from their land into captivity. And the temple in the Old Testament, it wasn't just kind of a building that had like symbolized importance. It was vital for their thriving, for their livelihood, for their people, because the temple represented where heaven and earth met. It wasn't their idea. It was God's idea. It wasn't their instructions. It was God's instructions. And it was going to be this dwelling place where God chose to dwell amongst his people. It's where heaven and earth met. It'd be a place of worship a place of sacrifice, a place, again, of corporate gatherings. And it's a story of a building project that went from being a source of pride with great celebration taking place at the end of chapter 3 as the foundation was laid to a source of disappointment and even shame by the end of chapter 4. As we saw last week, they faced all kinds of opposition through various tactics of the enemy, working through the peoples that were in the land there. And the impact of that opposition was spoken clearly in the final verse. If you have your Bibles open, the final verse of chapter 4. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in a little bit of irony here, that work stopped for the same amount of time as the building that we saw on the screen, the Xanadu building. The work stopped for 15 years. Now, the Xanadu story was caught up in bankruptcies and buyouts and political posturing that I don't fully understand. Unfortunately, I don't need to. My seven minutes of research is enough. But the question before us this morning, one that perhaps is especially intense in your own life, Or if not, in someone that you love dearly, and if not, it will be soon. How do God's people overcome opposition? How do God's people overcome the opposition of the enemy? How do you overcome? And what does a building project 2,500 years ago have anything to do with your life? Those are great questions. So glad you asked them, because I have some thoughts. Let's go to God's Word, Ezra chapter 5. We're going to start with just the two, first two verses. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God who were with them, supporting them. In seeking to answer the question, how do God's people overcome opposition, 
We're going to look at four things this morning, but number one, hear me close, number one is by far the most important. The first aspect of overcoming opposition is that God speaks. God speaks. You don't have to turn there, but the first verse in the New Testament book of Hebrews says this. This is how it starts. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And here in Ezra 5, two prophets are mentioned. Their names are Haggai and Zechariah, and those are also books of the Bible at the end of the Old Testament. Um, It goes Haggai, Zechariah, and then the final prophet Malachi, and that's the final three prophets in the Old Testament. Then the Old Testament ends. And we kind of know the timeline of when this work began to restart again, because, again, you don't have to turn there, but Haggai 1, verse 1, says this, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedach, the high priest. And then Zechariah 1.1 1, 1 similarly, similarly says that uh, God raised up him in the second year of King Darius in the eighth month. So Haggai comes, prophet from the Lord. Two months later, Zechariah comes, prophet from the Lord, and the two of them now begin to work in tandem. And so it is important to know the timeline here. Uh, for the few of you who have told me you've liked the timelines, here we go again. Uh, that King Cyrus comes to power in the Persian Empire in 539 B.C. He gives the decree in 538 B.C. for the Jewish exiles to return to their land, 900 miles away, and to begin rebuilding their temple. Chapter 3, we learn that it was two years later, as the people arrived, They built altars, and they laid the foundation of the temple in Jerusalem in 536 B.C. And that is in the end of Ezra chapter 3. Then the opposition comes. We dove into that opposition last week, and the work stopped. King Darius then takes the throne in 522 B.C., and in the second year of his reign, Haggai comes to speak the word of the Lord about 15 to 16 years later after the work stopped. So from last week, we ended with, and then the work stopped, and this week we start with a rise and a rebuild. This was not a weekend. This was not a month. It was 15 years. And now the first step in overcoming opposition is the spoken word of God. It's the first step. It's the most important step that our God is the God who speaks. And the reason why this is so vital is because when God speaks, things happen. When God speaks, God creates. Genesis 1.1, giving a lot of first chapter, first verses this morning. Genesis 1.1, you know this one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Massive verse, important verse. God created the heavens and the earth. How did he create? Verse 3, and God said, let there be light, day one. Verse 6, and God said, day two. And verse 9, uh, and God said, day three. And it's, and God said, and God said, and God said, over the course of seven days. You go later in Genesis, how does God then choose a people and form a people for himself? Genesis 12, now the Lord said to Abram, 
Speed up some more. How does God free his people from slavery in Egypt after they've been in slavery for 400 years? Exodus chapter 3. Then the Lord said from the bush, Moses, Moses. And you go all the way through that storyline in the Old Testament. When God speaks, things happen. When God speaks, he creates. And that storyline gets brought all the way here to Ezra 5. Where again, God speaks to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Please see this this morning. Again, from the final verse of chapter 3, or chapter 4, when the work stopped, to the verse first of chapter 5, the Jews did not do anything to make God speak to them. This is not a story of how they acted to overcome the opposition that they faced and then they got back in God's good graces, that he was mad at them because they stopped, but then they showed God that, no, they really are good people, and then God said, okay, fine, I'll take you back. It's not the story. It's not the story of the Bible. It's a story of how God speaks by his own initiative, and it's by the power of his word that they start again. God goes to them in his perfect timing. We don't know why he didn't wait one month. Why wasn't the Haggai there 15 years ago? Why wasn't the Haggai there when the opposition came? We don't know the answers to those questions, but we know that God sent Haggai, and then two months later, God sent Zechariah to be his mouthpiece in his perfect time. He did not wait for Israel to come to them. He initiated and went to Israel. The first step in overcoming and persevering through opposition in your life in the life of our church, is hearing the word of a God who speaks. And as we said last week, that opposition, it's not only that person that you have in your mind that you don't like and you don't think likes you, might include them. This is also opposition from within our own selves. How does that overcome? We know the enemy works from within. He works from externally, internally. And the way to persevere through it begins with hearing the word of a God who speaks. Because that enemy tries to shame us, tries to oppose us in the work that we feel like God is calling to do. And he's a powerful enemy. He's crafty. And he's got crafty tactics but is an enemy who is made powerless by the spoken word of God. You see that language, verse 1, that the God who was over them, despite their 15 years of just lying dormant and not being faithful, the God was always over them. Verse 2, God through his prophets were supporting them. That even when they were faithless, his people always found a God who is faithful and gracious towards them. The way to overcome sin and shame in our own selves or legitimate opposition from others outside of ourselves is to know that God's providential hand is always upon you. It's not dependent on your performance. And he's gracious. And it's the kindness of the Lord that overcomes, not the wrath of the Lord that overcomes. Church, is that your view of God? Not an external force that you have to appease, but a gracious God who moves towards you. 
honestly, perhaps what you need to hear this morning is not a rally cry, is not a loud command that you need to get a push from behind or a pump-up speech of how you're better than this and you can overcome this and nothing can hold you down. Maybe that's not what you need this morning. Brothers and sisters, perhaps what you need to be reminded of is that God is not disappointed by you. God is not ashamed of you. Do you know that? That he's above you watching. He is underneath you holding. He is beside you supporting. He is the God who speaks. And when he speaks, things happen. When he speaks, he creates. That's number one. Number two is then mankind rises. When God speaks, mankind rises. Verse 2 again. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. When God speaks, mankind rises. Fifteen years of struggle. Fifteen years of shaming themselves internally of how easily they were shut down, blaming maybe each other externally. Fifteen years, they hear the word of the Lord, and they rise to rebuild. Can you imagine the emotion present in the first day? My guess is day one here was a full day's work that did not outwardly look like much. Right? They might not have looked oppressive to somebody looking on or impressive. They probably spent the day wiping off dust of the foundation that was laid 15 years earlier. They probably spent the day scheduling some meetings with various people and project managers, managers involved. It probably did not look like much, but day one, make no mistake, everything was different. The first step towards rising and rebuilding is never the most impressive, but it is always the most important. The first step towards rising and rebuilding is never the most impressive, but it's always the most important. Earlier I read from Hebrews 1.1. If you know your Bible, you're like, hey, pastor, you left off the most important part of that verse. And you're right, I did. So now I want to read the whole thing. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. Back in Ezra chapter 1, we saw how Jesus is the greater temple. Jesus is the person where heaven and earth meet, that he may dwell with us. And then Hebrews will go on to show that he is the final prophet. He's also the final fulfillment of God's word through whom he created the world physically and through whom he recreates his people spiritually. Paul writes in his letters to the churches as those who are in Christ, he writes to them as new creations. When God the Father speaks through his Son, he creates new lives by the power of his Spirit. Everything in the Bible, in Ezra, points to, and then everything from uh, the Bible flows from Jesus Christ, which declares that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, is that God, through the perfect life and atoning death and bodily resurrection of Jesus, rescues 
all of his people from the wrath of God into the peace of God with a promise of full restoration of his created order forever and all to the praise of the glory of his grace. To be a new creation is to put our faith and, and our trust in Jesus Christ in response to his word to us. When God speaks, mankind rises in Christ. Friend, if you're here, if you're watching online or listening to a podcast and you've not received the gift of Jesus Christ through faith, this is the first and primary call on everyone's life to respond to the word of Christ. That God does not claim you as long as you behave for him. He initiates himself towards you. He's a gracious God. And you become a new creation by grace through faith. It's the moment where you can finally stop trying to overcome in your own power. It's the message that we want in every one of our songs that we sing, in every one of the prayers that we pray, in every one of the sermons that we preach that you cannot overcome in your own power. And we have the gift of stop trying to earn right standing with others or with God or a spiritual force. And we can stop shaming ourselves of not being good enough. The gospel is not a message that says you have to behave before you belong. But rather that you surrender to the one who accomplished the work for you. And now in his power, by his spirit, you can rise and rebuild. When that prophet Zechariah, uh, if you read his, uh, that book of the Bible, one of the things he says to Zerubbabel after this project gets underway again is he reminds him, he exhorts him that as you rise and rebuild, Zerubbabel, remember, quote, Zechariah 4, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Here's the thing. For those of you who remember when you first made that decision, and it's a decision to believe in and follow Jesus, here's the thing for most of us, the first day probably didn't look very impressive. People hourly maybe didn't even realize much was going on, just like in the rebuilding of the temple. It might not have been uh, much from the outside on day one, but we knew everything is different. It's a new day. You're a new creation. And so while day one, again, might not be not the most impressive, it is the most important. That's number two. Let's move to number three. God speaks. Mankind rises. And then number three, God provides. God provides. Uh, from here in a moment, I'm going to kind of summarize what happens through chapter five, uh, that once the work begins to um, happen again, once they start the rebuilding project, the opposition didn't go anywhere. The opposition remains, and therein lies a major point here, that even when someone becomes a new creation, the presence of opposition does not stop. And our lives as new creations is to work towards the new heavens and the new earth, right? Remember that quote from last week? As we await heaven, we work towards it. That we have a calling on our lives, and that calling will be opposed 
But our rising and our rebuilding does not hinge upon whether or not the opposition stopped. It hinges upon the promises and provision of the Lord, which is stronger than the opposition of the enemy. Your uh, rising does not contingent upon whether or not there's opposition. There will be. It's contingent on the promises of God that will not fail. So, summarizing chapter 5, uh, the, the governor over the region, who is working in tandem with the king of Persia, shows up at the building site 15 years later when these guys start to get things going again. And they're going like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's going on here? And they get out their clipboards. That's not in the Bible, but they, I assume they had clipboards. And they're taking the names of all the people who are back to work. And they're saying, all right, just you wait. Noticing everything, observing everything. And the governor then sits down and he writes a letter to King Darius. He said, hey, king, there's a big project under here, underway over here amongst the Jews. And when we asked them about it, they even had the nerve to tell us that King Cyrus, the king who was before you, had given them a decree to rebuild. Sounds crazy, right? But that's what they're saying. So, so Darius, go ahead and check the archives. Go see about this decree that they claim. This is the BC version of saying, hey, go Google it. Look it up. Let's see if it's true or not. Do some research. It can't be true. Looking forward to hearing back from you soon, king. That moves to chapter 6. Darius says his administration, they did go Google it. And they found the notes from the original decree given by Cyrus and from there, Darius will now give his ruling back to the governor. And that's where we're going to pick it up. Ezra 6, verses 6 through 12. Now therefore, Tatnai, governor of province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozanai, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river, and whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, Wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them by day, day by day, without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Not only does Darius reaffirm Cyrus' decree, not only does he say, and it's going to be funded by your royal tributes that you have beyond the river in your bank accounts, but whatever else is needed, after 15 years of stopped work, give it to them. And by the way, if anyone stands in the way, you'll be impaled from a beam on your own house. I got to say, I did not see that coming. I did not personally remember that before studying for this sermon. 
And I would love nothing more than for 15 minutes to spend on God, talking about God's sovereignty like we talked in week one with Cyrus, that Darius was not a man of the Lord. Darius had his own selfish motives. But Darius was used by the Lord to carry out the Lord's purposes. That was true yesterday. That's true today. That's true for any leader on a small-scale level or large-scale level this world has ever seen. And yet... What a powerful and graphic display of power, but more than that, of God's provision. God's provision for his people, this is what we need to see, that God provides for his people when they faithfully obey his word. Zerubbabel didn't know what was going to happen when they restarted the work. I I suspect he had his own suspicions. He's a little anxious about it. But the word of the Lord came, and God spoke And when God speaks, we rise. And God provides for those who are faithful to obey his word. And for those who were raised in Christ, we can trust that God will always provide what we need when we need it, even if the timing is not what we would have expected. And when we face resistance or we face rejection, and we might face it, again, internally or externally, we want to keep emphasizing that, God's silence or appearing silence at any given moment of our life does not signal his absence. For we have his spirit in us, and he always intervenes in his own time. And so in that way, I would say that we have the benefit of knowing that, that in these days, unlike the days of the Old Testament, God is never truly silent. It's why we should be, one of the many reasons why we should regularly be in his word, because do you know every time you read this, every time you read it, every time you listen to it, it's God speaking. And when God speaks, he creates, and he speaks by his word. We don't have to wait for a word to come from somebody else. God speaks every time you open this. And we have his spirit within us who affirms his word to us, who gives us wisdom day after day. Because the enemy's approach has not changed from Ezra chapter 5. It has not changed from Genesis chapter 3. The enemy wants to confuse what God has said. If God says something and then he creates, the enemy wants to confuse what he said. You see it? That was his approach to Eve. Do you remember in Genesis 3? Did God really say, you shall not eat the fruit of this tree? And that's what he wants to do to you. He wants to confuse you. He wants to derail God's word in your life. Did God really say he'll always be with you and never forsake you? Did God really say he wants you to experience joy? Did God really say that you were valuable and loved? Did God really say that about your marriage? Did God really say that about your work or your behavior? Did God really say it? Are you sure? By the power of his word, God supplies the strength and courage to fulfill it, to fulfill his word to you, and to stand against the confusion of the enemy. Now listen, it doesn't mean we always know what God is doing in our lives. Gosh, no. (laughs) But we can know that despite the times when we don't really know what's happening or why God is doing something or why he's not doing something, we can trust him with our lives. We can be obedient to his word, regardless of the hardship it might bring about. And Zerubbabel 
persevered through this opposition. Zerubbabel trusted that God will always provide what God demands. And we see what happens. That by God's grace, the temple was finished in the sixth year of Darius' reign. Four and a half years after the word of the Lord came through Haggai and Zechariah, four and a half years after the work restarted, it was finished. Earlier I addressed those who have not believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, affirming that is the primary calling on your life to rise in Christ by repentance and faith. At this point, I want to slow down and ask those of you who are in Christ, where is God calling you to rise and rebuild? Perhaps you know the answer right away. More likely, maybe that answer is not immediately clear to you at the moment. And perhaps that's because you have not focused on hearing the voice of God through his word, through his spirit, through a community of faith that can externally affirm what the spirit is internally affirming in you. Maybe it's something recent that you know God is calling you to rise and rebuild something relationship, something in your life, something that you know that you decided to stop, maybe, even probably, it's something that you've left dormant for a long time. Brothers and sisters, where has the work stopped? It was 15 years since Zerubel got to work, and even then it was never too late to start again. There's an illustration that always stuck with me when I first heard my father say it about elephants at the circus. Maybe you've heard this. I'm not sure where the circus industry stands these days, to be honest. But the reality is that it was pretty brutal the way they trained elephants. And that they would get an elephant as a baby. And they would tie them to a peg where they would tug and tug and tug to try to free themselves. But they were not strong enough to do it. And eventually, they would stop trying. They'd be convinced in their own minds that they could never break free of that peg. So even as they grew over time and got to a point where they would be more than strong enough to break free, they would never even try. And people like us would see these massive elephants at the circus or these massive elements tied to this little rope and peg and be like, wow, how incredibly well-trained that elephant is. They're not well-trained. Their spirits were broken in bondage. Brothers and sisters, some of you are in bondage to fear, and you have been for a long time. Because something happened, maybe recent or maybe long ago, that broke your spirit. That perhaps you were a victim to a trauma or a certain kind of abuse, neglect, treated a certain way, and your confidence has been completely taken from you. And you have long stopped trying to overcome because you're convinced you will never break free of those chains. Brothers and sisters, it's time to rise and rebuild. 
in Christ, you are more than strong enough to break free. And it won't be in your own power, but by his spirit. And that first step might not look like much, but it's a step where everything can change. You don't need to wait to get stronger. You can live in the freedom of Christ's power in you. And us as a church, can we ask the question, where can we rise and rebuild together as a church? Where can we be bound together by mission and and not lamenting the area we're in or how hard it is to be a Christian around here or to be a church around here or how much opposition we might or may not face? If we do that, if we resort to that, we are acting like elephants who have been broken. Where can we be having just conversation after conversation, just encouraging one another of how to reach the lost in our lives? How how can we be encouraging and spurring one another on, not only to gather together for worship, but to scatter for his name's sake? How can we be praying for, encouraging, and brainstorming with one another for the ways that we can be a blessing to those around us, especially the overlooked and least among us? I'm never against small talk, Small talk has a very valuable uh, feature in, in, in the realm of communication, but you can get small talk anywhere outside this place. This is the community to talk mission. This is the, communi- the community to have dinners and conversations across the table and on walks and on, on the front lawn in the front and texting throughout the week in our grace groups to say, Christ is in us. Let's go. Let's go. Last point, number four. Mankind worships. God speaks. Mankind rises. God provides. Mankind worships. I want to read the final passage. What did the people of God do in response to the finishing of this temple? Let's go to verse, chapter 6, verses 19 to 22. On the fourteenth day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites have purified themselves together, all of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanliness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful. And I turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. I've talked about this at much greater length in an earlier sermon in this series, but it bears repeating that the kind of lives God is calling us to is not primarily a life of doing things for him. It includes that, but it's not a life primarily of doing things for him, but a life of worshiping him for what he has done for us. A life of worship. And the people of God gathered together to keep the Passover for the first time in Jerusalem at a finished temple since they first went into exile 70 years ago. Gathering together and observing the Passover reminds them of what God has done in saving their people. All the way back to Egypt. 
Gathering together and observing the Passover meal strengthens them in their calling, knowing that God that saved them is the God who sustains them and binds them together. And I look to my left and I look to my right and I see others partaking in the meal as well. And I'm not alone in this. But then look at this. Gathering together and observing the Passover meal attracts non-believers who see what is happening and is drawn in by their devotion to God and one another. Did you catch that? I wish I could do a whole sermon on this. Verse 21, it was eaten by the people of Israel who have returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. This has always been God's plan to choose a people to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. This is why regularly gathering for worship matters, not as ritual, not as routine, not to get something from God if I go to church, but to be reminded of what he has done, to be strengthened by his sustaining grace, and to missionally show a world what a gathered people of God looks like, and they are welcome to join it. How do God's people overcome opposition? How do you overcome opposition? God speaks. Mankind rises. God provides. And mankind worships. That's how. I'm going to pray in a moment, and then we're going to respond by singing together this song by City Light called, Yet Not I, But Christ, Through Christ in Me. And I want to close by reading a verse from it, and then I'll pray. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. For in my need, his power is displayed. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley, he will lead. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall overcome, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's pray. Father, I pray that with our eyes fixed on you, that as we prepare to sing, we can sing that which is true in our own hearts, Lord, that we can acknowledge that the valley feels deep, that the darkness feels dark, that we are weak, and yet in that weakness we can rejoice. Lord, that your spirit and presence within us frees us from the chains that threaten to bind us, and instead that we are bound to you by your grace. Father, allow us to feel the impact not only of what that means for our eternity, but what that means for us today and how you can use us to be a blessing to those around us because our strength comes from you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond in song together, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper.